0: people who believe that this world is fair and good. It's all lollipops and rainbows. I remember what happened to my parents. You remember what happened to your parents? You and me, Topher, we don't do lollipops and rainbows. Cause we know those are pretty colors that just hide what the world really is. Black and white. Pop heads and welcome to a special episode of Three Pizine Presents Popcast, A.K.A. the Tomcast Podcast. And I'm your host Tom. If you are interested in all the social media stuff that we do, which could be more, but we do, we still do some stuff. You can follow along with the show at three at Tomcast underscore Popcast on Twitter and at the Tomcast underscore Popcast on Instagram. Remember, this is our our special series covering HBO's new show Watchmen. And this is for Episode 2, martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. Remember, this is a show based on the world of The Watchmen. And as such, as the show opens, a body has been found and a cop has been murdered in Tulsa. Like in Episode 1, the previous week, uh, we open with a scene in the past. And it is a scene uh, based in real reality, in real life, something that actually happened, just like in week one, in episode one, when we saw the, the Tulsa massacre of Greenwood. Uh, this opens with a, a letter being dropped on, on the, the African-American soldiers fighting in World War I in Germany. Uh, the show ep- opens with a German commander uh, bringing a typist into his office, and uh, the, t- the typist's name is Frau Mueller. That may come into play later, may not. We're not. We'll get to that later. And he dictates a letter to her that will be then dropped on the soldiers. He brings the typist in because she can st- translate from German to English for this letter that they are going to drop on the African American soldiers. And it is a letter that talks directly to the African American soldiers of the United States military and asks why are they fighting for this country that hates them. A country that lynches them, that has Jim Crow laws to prevent them from voting, and you know it, it it offers them a chance to come, you know, leave the United States military, come join the join the join Germany, live in Germany, and be happy and and free of oppression. Again, this was real. This was a real thing. Um, I never saw any statistics. I had to look into uh, some details on this to kind of understand it a little bit better before I wanted to, to talk about it today. And it's a, um, you know, <laughs> to, to me, the Germans make a damn good point. You know, why would African-American soldiers spend uh, their time and their lives fighting in, in, in at what at that time was a segregated army um, fighting for a government that was, you know, not actively protecting them from, from lynchings, from, from murdering, from being murdered in the streets... Um, you know, I, I feel like the Germans made a strong pitch to get the German, to get the African American soldiers to, de- to defect basically to Germany. Um, one, one of the, one of the essays I found about this, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it theorizes that the reason why it didn't work, why, why the African Americans stayed fighting for the United States military in World War One, and then later in World War Two as well Um has to do with, with the sense of ownership that uh, the African Americans, you know, have for America and, and their desire to to struggle and grow with the country and, and help force it to change and to become a better place. Uh, I think that's a interesting uh, take on it. And uh, you know, I, I'm not a historian. I'm just telling you guys something that I came across in in my research for this episode. Uh, But it's it's it's, again we open up very strongly with an interesting detail. Now, how this connects to our show is that in episode one we see a a soldier during the Tulsa massacre. We meet young Will who's at the movie theaters with his mother, and they meet up with the father who's helping, trying to get them out of Tulsa, trying to get them out of Greenwood from during the massacre. Once the massacre, the attacks for the massacre begin. Um. Will's father hands him a letter. We don't see the front side of the letter. We only see what's on the back in episode one, which says, watch over this boy. Today, we see the other side of that letter is this letter that was, that was airdropped in World War I. Will's father grabs this letter and keeps it with him. Uh, you know, not quite sure why, perhaps, as a, as a reminder of, you know, what's wrong in his country, what's being offered to him in another country, you know, what he's fighting for. In the war and at home. It's hard to say for sure. But this letter... It has... Substance throughout the series thus far... Through the first two episodes. So this is the letter that we find... At the end of episode one... When we meet up with Old Will... Played by Louis Gossett Jr. Has in his hands. So now we see the other side. We know what's on the other side of the letter. we got watch this boy on one hand... On one side of the letter. And a letter from the German high command offering African Americans a better life in Germany than they can get in America. That's a strong statement, just like this, this, just like episode one started strong by basing it in reality, episode two of Watchmen starts strong by, again, basing it in reality of the, the racial struggles that, that have happened in this country and that still happen in, in our country of, of America in an incredi- incredibly well-done opening. We shift from that World War I flashback into our present time, where we find Angela confronting old Will in the wheelchair by the tree. Uh, she brings him into custody. She takes him back to her little hideout, her little bunker, where she keeps her sister knight uh, costume and accessories. And uh, it's the, the old little bake shop. And uh, there she conducts an interrogation of Will. Will. And Will offers up a lot of strange explanations for things, and she's not really buying much of it. But one of the things that does come out is that uh, that Will makes an accusation against Judd Crawford, uh, the Don Johnson character, her and her friend, and says that he has a lot of skeletons in his closet. And uh, that that that's kind of a part of the impetus of, of this this week's episode is is, is unmasking some skeletons. All right, we're we're you know seven minutes into the show, but I do want to clarify once again. Uh, I'm I'm going to try and avoid as many uh, spoilerific details as, as I can. Uh, you know, the episode's only two three days old at this point, and I don't want to, I don't want uh, to discourage anyone or to, or potentially ruin anything from happening. So the things that we're going to go over, um, I'm just going to try and hit hit some plot points, um, and and not really get into details of of uh, things that uh, you know if you're watching the show, or if you're going to watch the show. You'll, you'll find out on your own shortly. Um, and hopefully I can do that. In, uh, hopefully I can maintain that balance of, of talking about the show without giving away a lot of the finer plot points of the show. Like I said, we are going to talk about stuff. Okay? So, I mean, if you want to go 100% spoiler-free to the episodes, again, watch the show first, come back to this, and and I think you'll have a good time with, uh, with some of the stuff that we are talking about because uh, we kind of get into some of the uh, homages that are being... Uh, Given to the graphic novel, to the, to the uh, the the story that comic book people, you know, literature people even are are familiar with. There's a lot of references, a lot of homage paid to um, things depicted from that from that that seminal graphic novel by by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, and uh, that's important. And one of those homages comes shortly after this opening scene, uh, where where you know in the graphic novel the newspaper stand played a really uh, really, I wouldn't say vital role necessarily, but I mean, everything in the Watchmen is kind of vital to a certain extent. But we get a newspaper stand in the show. It shows the New Frontiersman newspaper, which is the paper that published Rorschach's journals, which have helped fuel conspiracy theorists and also been the inspiration for the 7th Cavalry, who are our antagonists in, the, in this series. Uh, and they're, they're, you know, again, they're they're still kind of doing their thing. They're they're talking about the conspiracy of the reigning squid and how it's the government trying to, you know, keep people in 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 check through fear and superstitions and, and stuff like that. Um, so that you know, the new frontiers of is still around. The newspaper stands still around. Something in our own twenty nineteen that's not really a thing anymore. Now, remember, this twenty nineteen of the Watchmen technology is a lot different than it is now. There's no there's no internet. There is no smartphones. So the newspaper stand, the newspaper in general. Is a vital piece A vital method of, of getting the news And information to people still It's, it's a, again A wonderful homage to the comic book Homage to the comic book And uh, I, I, I love seeing it You also get in this episode Just like in the previous episodes A lot of clock references A lot of kind of like doomsday clock Five minute to midnight sort of things And one of those that happens Is we get another flashback and this is the flashback to again an event that was mentioned in episode 1 we get we see the white Knight now we see what happens the the attack of the 7th of the 7th cavalry against the police of Tulsa Oklahoma you know we see that it's on christmas eve christmas day the stroke of midnight on christmas day basically that's how the scene starts we get that again that homage that clock ticking to midnight the doomsday clock and we see the actions of Again, we see the actions of White Knight. We see it from Angela's perspective as it's showing her and her husband getting ready to celebrate Christmas together. And then it happens. And again, I'm not going to go into do a lot of details there, but we see, we see Angela, we see how she gets injured. Uh, the injury that, again, that was shown in episode one. And we also kind of see, at least what we're, what we're supposed to see is we kind of see Angela and Judd Crawford in the beginning of their, their friendship we get a lot of information through this flashback scene and we get reference to uh, her partner at, at the time being killed and we realize that through this again again these are these are my, again minor spoilers i'm not going to give away too many plot details but we find out the relationship that she has with her kids that we met in episode 1 and we find out in this episode that her children she's adopted they are they are the the children of her murdered partner and you know from the events of this white night, uh, this is when we get, you know, a, a bunch of guys in Rorschach masks attacking the police department. It's from this event that the police forge their masked identities as well to protect their personal lives, their fr- their family, their friends. So it's it's a really powerful flashback scene. Um, one of the characters I didn't mention last time uh, in last week's show is, is Cal Ebar, who's played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. You may recognize him. Uh, he played Black Manta in the Aquaman film. He hasn't had a lot to do so far in the first two episodes, um, but he, re- he brings a really kind of grounded reality to, to Angela's character who has to deal with all of these horrible, awful things. He uh, seems to be this kind of like calming presence in her life because it seems that she knows that she can go out and do the things that she has to do, the punching of people in the face. Uh, to protect her family, and she knows that Cal is at home taking care of the children, and that he can be counted on. You know, he he's part of this. He's attacked as well during the during the White Night. It's 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 all ties to itself together. Pretty pretty crazy. You guys don't even know. I have a fucking basket full of notes here. I mean, I, I I this show. Like I said, this was a densely packed episode. A lot of really good information. A lot of really good details come out of this show the world building continues to happen. Uh, and it's not all these talking heads. It's not just like talk, 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 exposition, exposition, exposition. It's, we're going to show you things we're going to, you know, it's not serving up information on the silver platter for you. You, there's a lot to kind of parse through and and to find out on your own, to take information from Be like, Oh, is that where they're going with this? Is this how this connects to that? One of the again, one of the interesting things about this particular story in in relationship to the to the graphic novel is, you know, in the graphic novel, it's a world where uh, Richard Nixon's you know been able to change the laws. He's been able to stay in term and in power it be, to be the president for you know thirty you know well I don't think it's thirty years in the comics, but for an insanely long time, like five terms I think is is one of the numbers referenced in in the comics, and you know it's a world that's a U.S. In, in America, that's been uh, run for a long time by a uh, conservative mindset, a, a, you know, a, a mindset not towards progressivism. And one of the interesting aspects of the comic book, when you, when you look at the society that they're depicting, is it's set in a New York City, you know, one of the most liberal, one of the most progressive cities in the world. But it's a, it's a New York that's stuck because of the, the, the way the government acts, the way the government's behaviors, their policies towards things. This conservatism, 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 this USA First mentality of Richard Nixon, and how that you know how how that world shaped because of that. This is a world that's different. You know, the, the juxtaposition here is that Nixon's out. Robert Redford, a very a well known liberal actor, is now in charge of the country, and what we're getting is 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 the diametric opposite of that. We're seeing in America. Middle America, specifically, because the show is set in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that's pretty much as opposite from New York City as you can get. And we're seeing the effect of a, a liberal government um, and its effect on middle America, which is, uh, I, again, I think it's a wonderful uh, 180 degrees from the graphic novel to explore things from a different side, to kind of look at these these actions in a different way. And again, everything you know it, just like in 1980 in, in 1984 85 when that when that comic was was coming out you know nuclear disaster was it was seemed imminent you know the world was on the brink the doomsday clock was a thing and um just like nowadays the it seems like there's a racial doomsday clock and that's the thing nowadays it's like or you know we're counting down to the day that, like, the, the new civil war happens in, in American culture, and yeah, again, I, again, I'm not smart enough to go down that road, and I don't, I, you know, I don't want to get into a, a lot of ethical quandaries and stuff like that because this is this is a fictionalized show, but it's depicting real things in a real way, and it is far too prescient for its own good. I mean, this is a yeah, it's an alternate reality, but it's it's real enough that make you to make you pay attention. And I love that about the show. And we get to learn a little bit more about this uh, kind of like liberal world that Robert actor, Robert Redford as the president has established for us. You know, in episode one, they make reference to Redfordations, which is um, what, what is called the, the reparations that, that, that Robert Redford and his, his uh, liberal government have given to people who have been uh, affected by, by, by racism, by tragedy, you know, specifically for the, for the show's purposes, the the descendants and and the people who uh lived through the greenwood massacre in in Tulsa plays a big part in, into this show and and that's something that's something to keep in mind as as we're kind of crossing the, crossing the streets basically uh from this nixon led world that the nixon led USA that we had in the 84 85 comic book series to this 2019 and again you take that and you realize, okay, like, hey, we're not in New York City with conservative values. We're in middle America with liberal values. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's a fascinating exploration so far. And I think they're doing a, a damn good job. Um, so one of the things that, that, that happens as well, you know, is uh, Greenwood now has a, a cultural center where you can go and find out if you are, uh, a, it looks like a, 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 almost like a memorial dedicated to the people who were massacred. In Greenwood, um, but it also looks like a a place to learn if you have a connection to Greenwood uh, biologically. There is there is a DNA testing aspect to find out if you have a connection genetically to someone of green from Greenwood, and if you qualify for the the reparations that, that the Robert Redford led government offers the Redfordations as they call them on the show, uh, dismissively apparently apparently it's dismissive when you call them Redfordations. I think, and it's through this DNA center that that Angela begins her really um off the record investigation into will again, that's how this show starts angela this is how this episode starts Angela's confrontation with will, old man will one hundred and five year old will who makes a lot of bold claims, says he has a lot of friends in high places um and she's gonna run some genetic testing to see who this guy is, you know, and again, the fact that she does this off the record. Uh, this is either because she's keeping it close to the vest, or because possibly, as, as again, possibly as part of like the, this this more liberal world, the, it, it's it's entirely possible the police don't have a genetic database to run through the, the, you know she can't just do a genetic test at police headquarters because it's very possible that's not something that she has access to, you know, um, DNA testing may not be something that, uh, uh, you know, this this government of, of two thousand nineteen looks favorably on and just like you know in episode one we see that uh police officers have to call headquarters to dis to even have access to their weapons this could be part of that world so she goes and does this now again it could just be because she's she's doing this off the record she's keeping things kind of close to their vest right now so she goes to do some testing she submits some dna from will puts it in the machine and then we go off now at this point we get um we get kind of a sub story, like it's, it's, I wouldn't call it like a B plot or anything like that, but we get something that was kind of alluded to in the first episode. Is this American hero story, which is kind of like a reality show depicting the the, the superheroes of of yesteryear, characters that were mentioned or shown in the original Watchmen graphic novel, the Minutemen characters uh, as they were in the comic books, and this we we get the first episode. And what's interesting about this show is like apparently it, it is. Must-see TV, we see everybody watching the show from from Angela's adopted son Topher and, and, her, and her husband Cal. We see uh, uh, we see the Looking Glass character, Tim Blake Nelson's character, Looking Glass, watching the show, eating, eating uh, TV dinners uh, with his mask half on to watch this episode of, of apparently Must-see TV of American Hero Story. We also see Seventh Cavalry members watching this show. Apparently they are deriving... From this as well, and it's interesting to see what they're doing. It looks like they're building uh, bomb jackets, bomb vests, while this episode of American Hero Story plays out. So, what we get next is is a scene uh, from this American Hero Story, this 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 uh, reality documentary kind of thing, uh, where they recreate the events of these superheroes. That again, so far we've seen superheroes that that were depicted in the comic books. And first up, we get Hooded Justice. You know, he has a big giant cape wears a noose around his neck. That might be a parallel to something, but I won't say what. So you kind of see this, this hooded justice arriving on the scene, and what you get is um, a, a, a fascinating parallel between why he wears this mask, and they, they do this great voiceover, and I'm, I'm going to play the voiceover at the end of this episode, um, where he's talking about who he is and why he's wearing this mask, and the the voiceover plays out as Angela's driving to a to a social function, and uh, the the parallels are just I mean they're 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 right there. It's, it's pretty much the, the closest they get to like you know telling you something directly to your face about why masks are important to these people and what the masks do and what they provide the, the sense of self and security that they they give a person. Uh, it's a fascinating scene. Like I said, I'm gonna play that voiceover at the end of the episode for you guys. Another neat little connection um, during this American hero story is the use of Hooded Justice, which in the comic books is believed his secret identity was Rolf Mueller. This might be an allusion to the receptionist who does the typing for the letter that is airdropped at the beginning of the episode. Her name was Frau Mueller, as I, as I said before. So possible connection? Maybe. So Angela goes to the social function. I can't, I'm not going to say why or what it's for. Watch the show. But at this event, it's she's going to take an opportunity to look into and look, in, look into Old Will's claim of Judd Crawford having skeletons in his closet, and then we get Angela being awesome, like just like we have most of this show, and she has a really cool pair of X-ray specs. <laughs> That's all I can really say about it. It's like I said, it's interesting the way the tech, the technology is in this show you know no internet no smartphones but we got badass tech spec you know x-ray specs and i I wonder if we'll get to a point where we kind of reveal that a lot of this stuff is you know developed by the superhero community like back when night owl was was probably she's we saw that night owl was kind of like a, you know obviously like a batman anagram he had the money to build cool tech and perhaps that's something that after the events of Watchmen, maybe that's something that that dan driver gets into maybe he becomes some kind of uh tech guy for the police departments or something like that. It, it'll be interesting to see how how some of this kind of seeks out. Again, using these X-ray specs, uh, Angela's able to find an actual skeleton in Judd's closet. Not an actual skeleton, but in, in in the sense of the word, like something that he probably doesn't want known, she finds out about. How this is going to play in things, we're still not quite sure yet. Um, again, you you find the evidence... And it, it says a lot. Then you think back to the, the the White Knight flashback, and maybe you start to think of a few other things that, like, hey, I wonder if this connects to this. this you know, there they might be trying to lead us down one road that we shouldn't go down. But it, again, there's there's parallels and there's there's possible connections between those scenes and what you find in Judd's closet. What's also interesting uh, in the scene before she goes to investigate is uh, we meet uh, Senator uh, Joe Keene. Now, this is the... uh, I think they're playing him as the son or grandson of the Joe Keene, who in the comic book universe is responsible for the Keene Act, which is what outlawed superheroes in the first place, which is what kind of like the impetus of that world is. So we have a a, a new Joe Keene in this world. We're not quite sure what his role is going to be just yet, but I suspect it, it will start to play out over the course of the series um you know whether he has connections to to the to the police or it's very possibly very likely he has connections to the seventh cavalry you know again not sure yet he wasn't in the show long enough for us to really get anything out of him we just Watchmen fans know that name so it's possible that 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 keen has a further role to play there i know there's a lot of rumors on the internet about you know him possibly having a, a a more noble connection to the characters but we'll see about that um I kind of want to wait and let that play out. I don't want to go down the speculation road. Uh, that That's what the Internet's for, and uh, I don't have time to mess around <laughs> in a bunch of subreddit forums. But if you like to do that, by all means. I'm not trying to be dismissive of it. It's just something I, I don't know. Speculation has never been my favorite thing. Plus, I kind of get a bummed out when it's like I'm goofing around with my friends and then something turns out to be right. It always bums me out a little bit. All right, now at this point, it's time to check in. Uh, with with Jeremy Irons playing Adrian Veet, uh, aka Ozymandias, out in his uh, his his hideaway castle, with his uh, his uh, his manservant and his woman servant, Mrs. Cruxshank. Um. At the end, in last week's episode, we re- he tells his his manservant and his his lady servant that uh, he's written a play for them to perform. His his source of entertainment apparently in this this hideaway castle of his. Um and this play is called the 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 watchmaker's son, which is definitely a heavy-handed reference to the Joe Joe Osterman's character, the Joe Osterman, aka Dr. Manhattan, that character who is the son of a watchmaker in the comic books. And uh so what this episode we see them acting out the play. And it's it's interesting scene two. And actually, before I get into the play, I should mention, you know, we, 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 we alluded to Ozymandias's uh, penchant for, for genetic mucking around and messing with things. And the scene, when we open on, onto his, onto his palatial estate, Ozymandias is riding a riding on horseback, comes up to a tree, what we think is an apple tree. Except like he pulls a tomato off of it and eats a tomato off of a tree. Uh, so obviously, uh, that genetic mucking around is is definitely a thing going on here. All right, so now let's fast forward again. The play's going on. We see, um, I gosh, I believe it's Mr. Phillip and Mrs. Cruxshank as you know the two his two servants playing the role of Jill Osterman, aka who will soon become Dr. Midnight, and then his lady love, and we we basically see the scene you know, in play form of when Osterman becomes Dr. Manhattan, the, the tragic circumstances which bring him to become the, the only real super-powered superhero of the Watchmen universe. What's interesting about the scene is we, around Ozymandias as he watches the performance, we see stagehands and people providing music for the, for the, to set the atmosphere of the scene, uh, and they're hooded. And we don't see what they're we we don't see their faces. They're just playing their instruments, or they're they're you know being grips on the on the on the side of the play. And in that scene, as with most superheroes, they're they're powered by by tragedy by accident. And in in Osterman's case, is no different. He gets locked in a reactor, and he's he's basically atomized, and becomes midnight. Not midnight. midnight. He becomes Doctor Manhattan as he slowly begins to pull himself together over, over days and weeks and months and years. So they recreate that scene where he's trapped in the chamber, about to be atomized, and uh, Ozymandias, in 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 a uh, uh, what can only be described as a moment of twistedness, uh, actually incinerates his manservant. Real fire. This leads to the big reveal, which again I think a lot of people speculated about this, and we weren't shocked to see it happen. But it was still sh- it's still a bit of, a bit of a surprise, as we, as the dead body is in this little chamber, uh, another body descends from from the rafters of the, of this little stage, and it's it's Doctor Manhattan completing the origin story. Again, what's interesting about this is that uh, once the the Doctor Manhattan mask is is removed, we see the face of of Philip again confirming the Migs' suspicions that cloning's happening, that there's some kind of cloning genetic m- muckery on Ozymandias' Ozzy part. Now, I guess that is a spoiler, but I don't think it's a big spoiler. Like, we're not getting into into juicy, juicy things. Um, that's when the rest of the stagehands and the music people, they r- r- pull off their masks, and we find out that, like, there there there's dozens of Phillips, there's dozens of Mrs. Cruikshanks, and uh, Ozymandias is doing things. He's So there's a, you know he's, got a, he's, he's working on his plan. We don't know much about it yet. It seems vague and weird, but that's kind of Ozzy, Ozzy Mans thing. The episode ends with a again, I'm not sure this is a, a shocking revelation, but I'm not going to say it to protect from something that, that could be big down the road. We get Angela in particular. She's back at the bakery engaging with old Will, she's surprised to find out he's gotten out of his handcuffs. He's He's been in and out of the bakery a couple different times, getting groceries and food and stuff like that, but he keeps coming back, waiting for her, because he knows they still have a conversation to finish. Uh, during, the, during this scene, uh, Angela gets some information via a phone call, and it, it shocks her, but Will seems to have known that was coming, and uh, un- sure what to do next, Angela decides it's time to take him into the police precinct and put him under arrest so she goes, she takes him remember, old Will is in a wheelchair, he's wheelchair bound he's not on his feet, so she's pushing him out to the car gets him loaded up into her minivan getting ready to prep getting ready to open up the back so she can load up the the wheelchair itself when, from out of the sky a giant magnet drops down picks up the car with old Will and flies away as Angela watches off in sheer amazement it's like what the fuck is happening right now again Will referenced the fact that he had friends in high places and uh, we begin to see that that's true so what the hell's going on here <laughs> that's what Angela wants to know that's what we all want to know and that's where the show leaves off and again a fantastic episode that is um, just packed full of great information great details the, the, the world building on the show is, continues to be impressive, as do the performances. Uh, Louis Gossett Jr. is fantastic as Old Will in the series, and uh, I hope you guys will pay attention to him, give him some love. Uh, I can't say enough about Regina King. We, we mentioned Yaya yeah, yeah, Abdul-Mateen is fantastic as Cal. Just watch the show. The performances alone are, are fantastic. Uh, one of the things I did want to mention too is, that, again, the name of the episode is "Marshall Feats of Comanche Horsemanship." Uh, this is the name of a painting. In the in the, in relation to the series, we see the painting in Judd Crawford's home. Uh, it is a painting of Comanche Native Americans, and uh, d- it depicts their their ability to, when in combat on horseback, they slide down the side of their horse to protect themselves from their opponents' attacks. Uh, This is a painting that depicts that. Uh, Google image it if you'd like, if you'd like to see it. If you haven't seen the episode, or if you want to read a little bit of history about it, it was, again, painted by George Catlin, uh, 1834, 1835. Catlin was embedded with, I believe, an American cavalry unit, a a, a Dragoons unit, I believe. I could be be a little off about that. Um, There are things to take away from that picture being in Judd's house, they co- they go in they they coincide with what Angela finds in his house in his closet. Um, again, we're getting it, this is the Damon Lindelof' produce show. We're getting to ask a lot of questions here, but I, unlike some of Lindelof's other work, I don't think it's gonna take us long to get answers. Uh, the the show's moving briskly. We're getting like I said, we're getting tons of world building, tons of, of of information, but it's coming out in. Uh, excellent ways through the use of flashback, through the use of historical um, historical events. Things are moving quickly here. I, I, again, I, I, it, I wouldn't be surprised if we could find out more details of what's going on with Judd in next week's episode, which I can't wait for. Uh, this show's quickly, quickly, quickly become my must-see TV. Uh, I don't usually get to watch it on Sunday nights. Uh, I do have to wait till Monday morning, usually Monday afternoon. But it's fantastic. I can't recommend it highly enough. And uh, I hope you guys are enjoying our special series following along with The Watchman Show. Um, and if you guys are are interested in following our show in general, you can do so on social media at TomCast underscore PopCast on Twitter and at the TomCast underscore podcast on Instagram. And if you're, you're so inclined, we also have a Patreon page. If you want to come over there and join Pophead Nation, uh, patreon.com backslash podcast. And uh, yeah, we're going to keep doing this. All right. So I'm going to close the show out with that voiceover from Hooded Justice that I wanted to play for you guys and the parallels that it has for, for Angela and and things to come and, and the power and the seductiveness of the mask and the masked identity. And with that, I say ciao, babes. Who are you? Who am I? When I was little, every time I looked in the mirror, I saw a stranger staring back at me. I was very, very angry. What could I do with all this anger? Hot, vibrating electricity with no place to ground it. If he couldn't release his rage, maybe I could help him hide it. I never felt comfortable in my own skin, so I made a new one. And when I slipped it on, he and I became one. His anger became mine. As did his thirst for justice. So, who am I? If I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be wearing a fucking mask. We're not going to be fucking sucked this year!